Well, just start out, I guess, by just asking you um, what prompted you to write this article? Uh, well, what prompted me to write was that um, um, we have an issue um, and it's it's a bigger issue in government and big business than it is in small business. And that is that when people make mistakes, uh, often the mistakes go with them to a higher level of authority and their, their career continues on an upward path. And that's a bad thing. Um, now, I'm not saying that everyone who makes a mistake should be um, penalised forever for that mistake, but I am saying that if there aren't consequences for mistakes, then a lot of um, not just suboptimal things, but bad things are possible of happening. And we've seen that in this particular circumstance with COVID. Uh, but we, we're seeing it in a lot of fields uh, where reputation is counting for more than uh, uh, ability. Um, and, you know, it's it's an issue generally in science. We've got the so-called replicability crisis where maybe 50%, maybe even more than that of um, papers that are published are wrong, where uh, people are unable to replicate uh, even seminal studies in particular fields. Uh, so that that is an issue in medical science, but it also is an area in things like uh, an issue in areas like um, economics, um, where uh, dangerous fads can take over and uh, governments can act on the basis of them. And um, the end result of that is um, poverty and misery and poverty and misery also come back to health because they're indicators of um, poor health outcomes. So. It's a, it's a huge issue for us and it's a huge issue the larger governments get and the, and the more intrusive into our lives they become. Is that, um, you've been a long-term observer of politics in Australia. Do you, is that what you put it down to, um, that the, the government is, is getting larger, the population's getting larger? Um, so I've just... So... Oh, yeah, part, well, it, it certainly plays a part in COVID. Um, this worshipping of um, people who are in authority, uh, even when they're proven to be wrong, that's something that's been going on for a, a long time. Um, a guy called Richard Tetlock uh, wrote at least one book about forecasting. And um, the one that I'm thinking of, I can't think of the title at the moment, but he borrows a phrase from Isaiah Berlin, who was a philosopher, and he talks about hedgehogs and foxes. And... Um, uh, it, hedgehogs are people who have one really big idea uh, and they're very strong in pushing that idea and foxes are uh, people who uh, are always adjusting and sniffing around and, and making changes. Uh, it turns out that a lot of the experts who are predominant in particular professional fields tend to be hedgehogs, so they tend to be the people that will bulldoze through. They also tend to be the talking heads on TV. Um, so uh, they're the ones that we hear uh, being interviewed all the time. And it's from a journalist's point of view, I can understand that it's uh, not that uh, attractive to have someone come on and say, well, this might be the case. Oh, but on the other hand, this might, might also be the case. They want to grab, they want it to be certain, uh, and they also want it to play to uh, their audience in a way which will bring them back. Mm. But what Tetlock found was that the best people in terms of predictions weren't the hedgehogs, they were the foxes. So we're more and more dominated by media. Uh, we have a, a wealthy society where more and more people are actually involved 
in politics and decision making and discussing public affairs. Yeah. Uh, we've got a huge leisure class. Uh, and, you know, that leisure class includes a lot of people over the age of 50, but certainly over the age of 65 who are retired right. uh, in good health and have maybe 30 years of life in front of them. So you've got all this information being pushed at them. And that means, and the, the sort of the gatekeepers who might otherwise have cut out a lot of the dross aren't there. Uh, so that means that the hedgehogs are having even more impact on us. Uh, a, a good example of a hedgehog in this area, his name's Neil Ferguson. He's at Imperial College. I always call him the evil Neil Ferguson because there's Neil Ferguson spelled N-I-A-L-L, who's a world famous historian of economics, who's very good at what he does. And then there's N-E-I-L Ferguson at Imperial College. He has been responsible for so many health scares over the last 30 or 40 years. He's, and is he a forecaster? Is that... It's a forecaster, yes, yeah. he models. Yeah. So he was there with the uh, mad cow disease. Yes. Uh, uh, spongiform encephalitis, I think, is the technical term for it. And he forecasts that, you know, millions of people were going to die. As a result of that, the whole herd, um, dairy herd and beef herd in the US was uh, in the UK was slaughtered. Uh, it turned out to be nothing like mm -hmm. that. Mm -hmm. He's also played roles with um, uh, swine flu and, and Asian bird flu. And he was the person who said there would be hundreds of thousands of people die uh, in Australia, I think, and millions were predicted in uh, UK from COVID. Yes. And it was as a result of those predictions that governments became panicked uh, instead of following the rule book, mm -hmm. um, which was, if you look at what Sweden did, that's what the rule book said, and that had been produced by the WHO. He co they copied what the communist Chinese were doing in China, mm -hmm. uh, which was specifically against what was in the rule book. The rule book said, look, protect the vulnerable, um, other people, let them make up their minds, advise them that it's probably not a good idea uh, to gather in large groups, but they have to get on with their business and, and run their country. And the Chinese approach by uh, uh, comparison was um, to isolate people in their homes, uh, not let them out to work, uh, in some cases even welding doors shut so they couldn't get out. Um, but it was Ferguson's forecast specifically that spooked the Western world into doing what they should never have done. Yeah, I, he forecast tens of millions of people were going to die. Um, yeah. yeah. And, um, and, and at the same time, people like Johnny Anides, um, who's got a specialty in this area, was using the Ruby Princess um, because we had a defined universe there of people who um, had contracted COVID and we could see how many were going to, to contract it and, and what percentage might die from it. He came to completely different uh, figures. Now, it's ironic that Ioannidis is the person who actually drew attention to the uh, replication crisis in science. There was a paper he wrote maybe 15 years ago. So this guy, Stanford University, I think, world-class, uh, he gets it right. Uh, and he's been getting it right a lot of the time and blowing the whistle on the problems. The guy who's got a track record of getting it wrong is mm. the one they listen to. Yeah, uh, That is not the way we ought to be running public policy. So we have to find ways of um, getting around it. And as um, Neil Ferguson, has he uh, walked back uh, his predictions or? Uh, look, I'm, I'm not sure. I, I lost complete interest in him when he was... Uh, 
record having a uh, dalliance with someone in the middle of COVID when uh, everyone else was being told that they should be locked up. Uh, at that stage, I thought, if this guy's got any credibility left, uh, yeah. I'll be surprised. So maybe he's dealt with himself. But there's a lot of other people in that um, uh, situation. And, you know, I uh, instanced um, uh, Grattan here and uh, also the... Uh, Oh, what Grattan Institute, is it? Or yeah, Grattan, Grattan had some, um, and who were the others? Was it Doherty here? But I don't want to, I don't want to ping the wrong person. Um, anyway, there was another institute here who were um, giving the government inflated figures uh, compared to what actually happened. Yeah, and going back to what you were saying um, earlier, uh, do you think that the role of social media and online entertainment has uh, caused some of this this hedgehogging? It has, but I think it's just the consumption of media right. uh, in general. And, you know, the most of the disinformation, what we now know to be wrong, was pushed by media sources, like legacy, what, what some people call legacy media sources during the pandemic. Um, I have a regular spot on ABC Radio here in Brisbane uh, on a Wednesday evening. We talk about state politics um, and... Just over a year ago, COVID came up and I made a couple of claims which should have been, even at that stage, uncontroversial. Uh, one was that um, natural immunity was at least as good as, if not better, uh, than um, uh, the, the vaccination. Uh, another was the lockdowns um, didn't work. Uh, I think a third was uh, that the evidence on masks was pretty thin. Um, I was told by the other person on the panel that was misinformation and the whole discussion was shut down. So, so the ABC policy was, if you said that, um, oh, I might've mentioned herd immunity as well, but if you said that catching it was similar in terms of its future prophylactic effect to having the vaccine, the ABC didn't wanna know about it. Mm. Um, you wouldn't have got that view into too many print um, outlets. I think the only one that's, in my mind, has got some honourable um, exceptions is the Australian in that they allowed Adam Crichton um, to write a number of uh, um, heterodox uh, articles on the subject. Yeah. Uh, and they had uh, Steve, someone or another as well, uh, who sounded off on lockdowns, etc. But most of the media, they didn't want to know about anything but the official uh, narrative and they weren't even prepared to allow for a conversation on the edges. So, no, it wasn't social media uh, per se because most people don't get their news from social media, in my view. Um, even when they do get it from social media, it's often recycled from the newspapers or, or the TV stations. You know, people don't type up their own news stories on Twitter, for example. Um, they take a link from uh, a print outlet that's online and they put it up there and they do their 120 to 140 or whatever characters uh, comment on it. So essentially, you're still getting it from the, the mainstream media. It's just another delivery source. Hmm. I mean, I get a lot of my news from overseas. So touching on what you're just saying, why why is it that Australia and Australians seem en masse to still be ignoring um, most of the studies and data that are coming out overseas? For example, um, I looked into Professor Phelps because um, you uh, spoke about her in the article and viewing her Twitter wall, um, wait, excuse me. 
viewing her Twitter wall is um, literally like taking a, a two-year time time trip back in time. And so she's still talking. So she's basically got wall-to-wall COVID fear porn. Um, she's got a COVID long, sorry, she's focused on long COVID. She's focused on masking. She's still renewing calls for lockdowns and people to work from home. Um, I don't understand how uh, people in positions of power like her and the politicians are still sticking so hard to the the views that they had and that have been proven incorrect from two to three years ago. Yeah. So, so I think there's probably two things that we need to talk about there. One is I think the populace, even if they may not say it, have actually become uh, sceptical of COVID. And you can see that in the willingness of people to uh, step up for the uh, the boost, next booster shot. They're just not willing to do it. Um, I know in our family, we know of people who've been damaged by the vaccine severely. One guy's had a stroke. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I'm not vaccinated uh, for a variety of reasons. Um, my partner has been, but she said no, no more. And, uh, after what I've seen with David, I'm not going to have another one. Um, so I think on a sort of common sense heuristic basis, the populace has said, no, we, we're out of this. We've seen enough. We, we have enough personal anecdotes that we've researched it ourselves. Um, when you come to the public, uh, to the policymakers and, and the politicians, there's another dynamic. I'm sure a lot of them realise what the population does, um, but they're the ones who put this situation into force. Um, and one thing that is very hard for a politician to do or an expert is to say, I was wrong. Um, you know, we had a politician here in Queensland, Peter Beattie. Um, he made an art form of saying, I was wrong and you need to elect me to fix it. And it worked a treat for him because people saw this as honesty until after a while they said, well, hang on, Peter, how many times should, can you be wrong before we, we've had enough of it? Yeah. Um, but but the fact that it was so successful for him was because politicians won't say it. Um, and it's the same thing for um, professionals, particularly those who build a reputation around particular ideas. You know, that's where their funding comes from. So admitting that they're wrong uh, means a whole lot of economic flow on. So they're not going to do that or they might do it gradually. Um, and so, you know, Karen was one of the hedgehogs that I uh, picked on in Australia, she was the one I specifically nominated and I haven't looked at her Twitter wall, uh, though I did see she followed me on Twitter the other day. Um, uh, but it doesn't surprise me that that hedgehog momentum is still there. I knew through reading her submission uh, to the parliamentary inquiry on long COVID uh, that she still held a number of those positions. And in fact, she got notoriety out of her submission for saying that both she and her wife um, had suffered um, vaccine injury, mm -hmm. uh, and in the case of her wife, quite seriously. Um, it's, it seems to be less serious for, for Karen. Um, but she's still pushing vaccinations. Yeah. Like, how could she be? Now, yeah. you know, I'd say there is a case for vaccinations in certain circumstances, <clears throat> but they're quite limited from what I can work out. Um, I just turned 65. I think anyone my age and under who's in good health with no comorbidities uh, would very likely, given the facts, make the same decision that I've had, uh, that I've made, which is I don't need to. Um, I will catch it. I'll survive. Um, and future um, 
outbreaks will be less severe and eventually it'll be like the flu uh, or a cold. Mm. Um, but, you know, if I was 85 with comorbidities, I might make a different decision and that ought to be left up to the individual. But Karen is pushing in a much broader way than that. And yeah. she's someone who's been very influential in terms of Australian health. Um, and so the quandary is that here's a woman who's been a member of parliament. She's been um, the uh, president, federal president of the AMA. She's currently on a committee about COVID, which, while not official, has got a fair bit of influence. Um, if she stays in that position of influence, when the next thing comes along, the chances are she'll be wrong on that too, because mm. past performance is the best predictor of future performance. Um, so the issue then is, how do you filter out the Karen Phelps of the world and maybe um, uh, replace them with um, and Nick Coates, for example, who did seem to be in the um, complete official camp at one stage, but you could see that as data came in, he changed his mind. Yeah. I mean, I was in the complete official camp in the first month or so because we had no data. Mm. But then as the data came in and you read people like Ian Edis, you say, oh, no, no, hang on, that's obviously not the way to do it. This is the way to do it. So so Coates, Nick Coatesworth rather, not Coates, he'd be a good person to have involved in the future. But Karen and people like her need to be kept out of it. And the problem is, how do you manage to do that? Yeah, I mean, I've just I've just looked over. She's got an emoji of a, herself wearing a face mask as her profile picture on, on Twitter. Um, so I think this comes down into uh, what, a phrase that you used in the article um, called a bureaucratic fail upwards. And can you explain what this one means and how this might relate? Well, well, failing upwards basically means, I guess another way of looking at it is promotion on the basis of time served uh, rather than uh, uh, things achieved. Yeah. Um, so, you know, another example I gave was uh, Kevin Rudd. Now, you know, when Kevin Rudd was knifed the first time by his colleagues, uh, the stuff that came out was absolutely horrendous. Um, you wouldn't have thought that a future federal government of either colour would have given Kevin a job, but here he is. He's now ambassador to um, to Washington. Um, he's not the only example I can find of people failing upward, but it was a pretty prominent one. Um, so it's a case where people's position, their relationships with other people, um, their ability to promote themselves counts for far more than their actual ability to to do the job. Um, now we see this in a lots, lots of areas. Um, you know, it's it shouldn't be any surprise to anyone that politics and political ability um, count for a lot more in a lot of organisations than um, actual ability to do the job. That if you can demonstrate you've followed the process, even if it had a bad outcome, um, that's enough in a lot of positions. So, so government is replete with those sorts of things, which is one reason why. Government contracts, for example, tend to run over. Um, you know, up here in Queensland, uh, they said they could rebuild the Gabba cricket ground for a billion dollars, and now we find it's $2.7 billion, and that's within a six-month period of time. Um, and no one will get into trouble on that. Um, so it, it's, it's endemic in government. 
Um, I think it's also endemic in large companies. So a good example of that was AMP, uh, which a couple of years ago now, the, the board all basically had to fall on their swords. Uh, and, and it was a stellar board. Mm. You know, there were people in there who were uh, seen as being leaders of the, the corporate uh, field. They had not been doing their job. Another uh, more recent example is uh, Star Casino, right. where, again, a whole lot of directors have had to fall on their swords. But you're very unlucky as a director if you're in a Star Casino or an AMP. Mm. Most people manage to be in companies for brief enough periods of time and companies that are successful enough, or if they're not successful under the current board, take that long to fail, no one notices who's responsible, that they get away with it. Uh, so that's another area. Uh, it doesn't tend to happen in smaller businesses. Um, in smaller businesses, if you're not making a, a profit, uh, you're not doing your job well, um, someone will say, well, you need to go because we can't afford for this to fail. Yeah. And they'll be fairly ruthless about it. Or if you're self-employed, you'll put yourself out of business. Yeah, uh, Academia is another area where uh, we see this sort of failing upward. Um Family upward and groupthink as well. I and and groupthink, yeah. yeah. Well, yeah. It sort of depends. You're right. It depends on a bit of groupthink as well. So you get academic fashions and anyone who tries to buck that fashion is not going to get their stuff published. And if they don't get stuff published, then they're not going to get uh, funding. And if they don't get funding, they're not going to get promotion. And if they don't get promotion, then they'll become a sessional lecturer. And the next thing you know, they'll be a consultant and uh, touting their wares on LinkedIn. Yeah. Uh, so again, there's a sort of, as long as you play the game, doesn't matter how good you are, as long as you're presentable, we'll keep moving you along. Um, and so this, this becomes more of a problem as you get more people in education, as you get more people in public service, and as, as big companies become more predominant. Mm. Uh, and we've been seeing that trend over the last hundred years. Um, and it's, it's a trend which appears unstoppable um but if it keeps going we'll have more disasters like covid yeah that's what i was going to say and when i say covid i mean the covid management yeah it cost us in straight cash something like at a federal level something like 300 million billion dollars um the debt that we'll have by 2030 as a result of it according to the parliamentary budget office is somewhere around 800 billion dollars now, what could have been done with that money is just amazing. It's I had a look at what we spent on World War II, uh, and it was equivalent to the spending for one year of World War II. Uh, and this is against a disease that killed far fewer people and, and was far less of a threat to the country than, than World War II. Um, so that was a giant, to use a technical term, cock-up. Um, if these people and these organisations are capable of doing that, uh, they're capable of repeating it until mm. uh, we, we run out of money. And unfortunately for Australia, we're still um, at the current um, debt levels relatively undergeared compared to, say, Japan or even the US. So there's room for another two or three COVIDs before we really wreck the place. <laughs> um, so these things have you know, real consequences. And that's what you were saying in the article is that somebody or people need to be called to account so that the same people aren't in charge 
when it happened or if it yeah, yeah. again. So, so my suggestion, apart from saying, well, let's cut the size of government, which is something that you know my think tank would argue for every day of the week, mm -hmm. uh, stop governments using regulations to uh, force companies to do particular things which have nothing to do with basic things like health or safety or you know law and order or those sorts of things. Um, so we'd argue that. Um, but I'd also suspect that at the moment our chances of getting too much action in that area is uh, is reasonably low. Uh, my other suggestion was that some organisation could take it on itself uh, to behave like the ratings agencies uh, do when it comes to companies who issue debt or in other ways want credit. So Standard & Poor's is one of the... Uh, well-known ratings agencies. Um, they rate the debt of the Australian government. They rate the, the debt of the state governments. They rate the debt of BHP, uh, Commonwealth Bank, um, all sorts of organisations that want to go to, to public markets to borrow. Um, so why not do something like that uh, in the area of experts? Um, so, um, uh, you know, I'm partly drawing from models overseas. There was a US website, I'm not sure whether it still operates, called Rate My Teacher, and another one called Rate My Professor, uh, where people could put up full and frank um, assessments of how good a particular lecturer or, or teacher was. Um, to help there's an unofficial version of that in Australia. Right, okay. Yeah. yeah um... Um, so, so, you know, at one level, um, if someone kept a database and it could be done as a sort of a wiki, you'd have to be careful because you don't want to defame someone. Mm. Um, that would put the, the organisation out of business pretty quickly. Um, but, you know, where it just plotted um, people's, um, uh, you know, what they've been predicting against the actual outcome, um, as much as, you know, performance uh, against the actual outcome, and then, you know, when that person pops up being interviewed on the media somewhere, you then shoot something off to the, the editor and so on, and you probably make it public, saying, why are you, why are you interviewing that person? Uh, here's a list of people in that area. Uh, here's the gold standard. This person gets 50% of their predictions right, which, incidentally, in the area of predictions would be not going too badly. Yeah. Whereas this person's only got thirty percent right. So are you um, saying that in terms of uh, politicians or health officers and officials or academics or all of the above? Um, well, see, politicians, it's a bit difficult um, because they often, well, people have low expectations of politicians anyway, and they get to rate them every three or four years of elections. Well, I mean, um, traditionally, they've had low expectations of politicians, but for some weird twist of fate over the last three years, it seems like people have almost worshipped politicians as if they're the all-knowing people, which I've never really understood. But um, I think that's a kind of wartime effect. Right. Um, so a good example is Winston Churchill, um, who saw the British people through World War Two and then lost the next election. Yeah. And didn't win an election then till 1965 or something like that. Had another term. 
Yeah. Um, so, you know, everyone rallied around Churchill. He was the man. Mm. But then once the uh, fear had, had subsided, their focuses all changed. Yeah. And he wasn't offering their need and someone else came along and, and offered more. So I think you see that with the, the premiers who were the ones who really got the, uh, the rub off. Uh, Anastasia Palaszczuk here, uh, Dan Andrews in Victoria. Um, uh, Mark uh, McGowan in Western Australia, you know, they all did well out of it. Um, On that uh, point, Perite didn't do so well. Perite right. didn't do so well, and and neither did Morrison. In the end, um, on that point, I just noted down something that you're saying before about um, uh, denying, and when we were speaking about why they're not coming clean about um, the COVID. And I just made a point of writing down, uh, is COVID, when you politicise something like COVID, does it just become another card in a, like a house of cards? And in terms of labour, um, you'd have to put like climate, energy policy, gender politics and COVID in there together. So is it a case of if you remove the COVID card that their whole political position kind of collapses? Is that why they're not? Um, well, certainly if you're a state premier, Yes. Um, you know, we they went all in on this. They uh, went all in, yeah. yeah. And, and you're right, there is a political dimension to this. And I've often wondered whether it might have worked out differently if Donald Trump hadn't been um, president. president of the United yeah. States, because his instinct was not to, his, his instinct in the first place, if you might recall, was shut yeah. the borders, stop anyone coming in. And he was abused for being racist initially mm -hmm. on that. Um, and but his successor did the same thing. Um, but then he was relatively, well, we can't shut everything up. Um, so the Democrats, oppositional politics is what they play there, as we do here. They ran to the other side of the ship. Exactly. Um, and, and the US is a big factor in how we do politics here and, and yeah. in the rest of the world. You know, and let's we, not forget that Biden uh, came out and said he was not taking Trump's vaccine ever. That's right. Yeah. That's right. And then by the time it comes out, Trump's off and he's in. Mm. And suddenly you must take the vaccine. So, yeah, there was a lot of politics there. And a lot of the people who bought into the COVID narrative probably wouldn't have if it hadn't become uh, a weapon in their political warfare. Mm. Um, and I'm particularly thinking about people on Twitter in that sort of instance uh, and social media generally where there is a lot of argy-bargy between people who identify with left and right. Yeah. Uh, so then suddenly COVID uh, became a, a way of saying, well, if this person's opposed to uh, mask mandates, lockdowns and vaccines, they want to kill grandma and they're a bad person and you yeah. shouldn't listen to them. Uh, and there's, in my view, far too much of that in our politics. But I think that does explain some of what happened. Mm. And you're right, you can't, if your political position's based on that, it's very difficult to walk back from it as well. I just wanted to get your opinion on something that I've been, since I um, read your article, I've been thinking about how um, the people that are calling for the amnesty, um, particularly in the article that was written in The Atlantic by Emily Oster, and of course, followed up with Joe Rogan. Um, is it, do you think that sometimes it's a case of the elites are calling for amnesty because uh, their position um, in COVID was maybe not as affected as perhaps some everyday Australians who lost their businesses, their jobs, um, and as you were just touching on, were outcast from society and fined and locked up for an additional three months. 
Um, oh, I'm not sure that it's, I think it's just an understandable, uh, so they're the more honest ones who are asking for the amnesty. Um, Karen, for example, isn't, but yeah, Emily Oster was. So she's saying, hey, we made a mistake. Um, and her secondary limb, which she's not being um, specific about, but which is definitely there is, please keep listening to me. Please keep me in a position uh, where I can earn money and, and I can pay the bills. So, um, but I, you know, I don't know that it's got anything really, any linkage to what happened to the people who, who basically fell out of society um, or pushed out, you know, that 10% or whatever it was that weren't vaccinated. Um, people like me who, you know, couldn't go to a, a pub or um, um, I forget what else I couldn't do for a while there. Um, not that it worried me particularly much, but if it had gone on forever, it would have. Yeah. Uh, seriously, people who lost their jobs, you know, uh, medical professionals like the the Doctors Against Mandates. Um, um, just trying to think of his name, Luke, who ran the um, obstetrics at um, Mata Hospital. Lost his job, probably his career. What I'm seeing here uh, with people presenting with miscarriages is completely off the chart in terms of what I've seen previously. And it seems to me off the 70 or so I've tracked that um, their vaccination status has got a lot to do with it. Um, but I don't think Emily's got him in mind when she's saying, uh, um, please give us amnesty. She may have him in mind in the sense that he could be very angry and um, you know, um, somehow want revenge, but it's hard to see in a civilised society like ours how you actually do get revenge in someone who writes opinion pieces for the Atlantic or, or anywhere else for that matter. Uh, you know, you're not going to go around and, uh, and uh, challenge them to a duel or uh, uh, kidnap them or something like that. It just doesn't happen. Yeah. And when things happen on scales like this, uh, you have to make peace ultimately with each other. Uh, so I guess what I'm talking about is the terms of the peace. Right. Um, and, and after World War II, we made peace with the German people, but they selected uh, certain people um, to um, to make a, a show of. Um, and, you know, that's what the Nuremberg trials were, to, to imprint indelibly on people's minds that if you're going to do something which affects the lives of other people, make sure that you're the one making the decision and you've taken full cognizance of everything. And if you don't, you can't rely on the, oh, well, um, someone above me uh, uh, told me to do it. And this, in, in our case, the TGA. Yeah. Um, so that's, I was going to um, ask that, um, is what, what in your opinion um, should have happened or should be happening instead of what is actually happening today? Well, there ought to be a fair income inquiry into it, um, but I don't think there's much chance of that. You know, I know a lot of my friends say Royal Commission. Well, it all depends on the commissioner and it all depends on the terms of commission. Um, and, um, you know, the record of governments is very few get, get seriously uh, touched by Royal Commissions they set up. Um, I think there's a much bigger chance of it happening uh, via litigation at some level. Yeah, um, because um, uh, the law is the law, uh, and if 
laws have been broken and someone's held accountable, then everyone's going to say, well, we need to do something about it. And if they don't, their insurers will. Um, so, you know, we might see some movement uh, uh, in terms of um, uh, companies who enforce vaccine mandates and cost people their livelihoods. Uh, you know, I think there might be some successful cases there. I don't have any knowledge of any. Uh, well, actually, I do. Melissa uh, McCann in um, in Mackay is a doctor who's running a legal case along those sorts of lines, I think. So, yeah, there's a few probably out there that are just below the surface at the moment that we're not hearing about. Yeah. There's also some fair income stuff happening in Japan. There's a, a real inquiry happening there. Uh, places like Switzerland, you know, you might find something pops up there. Uh, the US, uh, Florida, you've got um, Ron DeSantis, mm -hmm. and he'll be running a fair dinkum inquiry because um, he's like you and I, and I'm assuming that you and I are reasonably similar in terms of our views and how we came to them on COVID at least. Mm -hmm. uh, so I think he said his his Damascus moment was um, when you shouldn't wear masks and then you should wear masks. And he's a lawyer and he said, hang on, there's something going on here. And then he started drilling into it. Yeah. And the more he drilled into it, the more it didn't make sense. And then he got himself a Surgeon General, Dr. Lapido, I think he is, yep. who was also sceptical. And they stood out against the, uh, the mainstream and they took Washington on and they're having an inquiry. Now, what they find may well um, throw ripples around the world and make it difficult for uh, judges to rule against plaintiffs and uh, uh, perhaps even for governments to avoid um, some of the things that are possibly coming their way. Maybe some oppositions will, will get um, a bit of courage and, and take the issue on and when they get into power, uh, do something to, to look at the situation. But at the moment in Australia, the avenues seem to be fairly small yeah so what 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 do you suggest to australians that are still quite angry about that that 10 percent that you're speaking about before um yourself included myself included as well um i certainly well, still feel yeah. a, little, a lot of anger towards uh the politicians and towards what happened um yeah well you know i mean i certainly do um um and it's it's more than 10 percent. the 10 percent is the the official stats for people who aren't vaccinated there's a lot of people who got vaccinated because they had to for one reason or another. You know, they had a, might have, I know, um, uh, an academic who had sick parents in Canada. He got vaccinated because he had to travel. Yeah. Um, other people, you know, doctors and so on, uh, had it because they needed to keep their job and they weren't sufficiently concerned about the vaccines. They were prepared to throw the dice. Um, and then there'll be people who now know uh, some of the risks that were forced on people uh, and they strike home to them because it affects people who they know. Yeah, uh, It might affect their spouse or uh, yeah. might affect their um, children. Um, and um, so, yeah, I think you could be talking 20, 30% of the population. Mm. Um, who um, who have got reasons for being very angry. Um, and I guess I'd say uh, maintain the rage. Yeah. And it's possible that phrase, maintain the rage, 
was coined by Gough Whitlam right. on the steps of Parliament House in 1975, somewhere around November the 11th. Um, and there's still people. Um, so that's um, what um, almost um, 50 years later. Yeah. Uh, who maintain that rage. So it's possible to be angry over quite a long period of time. And in this case, it's done real personal damage and harm to people and to families. Um, so I think it should be possible to maintain that rage. Uh, and it's important what you're doing, you know, talking to, to people like me mm. um, so that people understand that they're not on their own, that there may be ways uh, that they can have a say, have an effect on things. Um, and that it's not illegitimate to bear a grudge, if you like, on something like this. In fact, it's quite important. And there'll be a lot of people out there saying, oh, look, just let it go. We've moved on. Uh, you know, we're all in this together, but in a different way. Yeah. Uh, so there's a pressure there. We need to resist it. We need to talk to each other to resist it. And we need to keep uh, interacting with each other um, so that we see what other people are doing and we hear other people's stories. So, you know, we were, my think tank was um, one of the organisations and people instrumental in setting up the Australians for Science and Freedom, uh, which you got my article off their website. It's a brilliant website. Uh, that's, a, that's a national organisation. It's not just concerned with COVID. Mm. It's concerned with science in general um, and the sort of free speech, open academic inquiry, uh, empiricism, uh, those sorts of things. So um, it's uh, keen to get people to uh, sign up to its mail lists, to become members, donate money, et cetera. Uh, so scienceandfreedom.org. Yeah. 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 Um, so that's, that's a, a way of um, um, fruitfully maintaining the rage. Did you end up losing your position on the ABC radio or were there? No, no, I'm still no they, they sort of, they tolerate me. Yeah. Um, I've been doing it off and on for about 20 something years. So, Gosh, okay. It kind of is. Yes, to my quirks. Um, I'm more or less one of the family. Um, I'm always polite when I put my argument. Um, so, uh, yeah. No, I didn't um, lose my spot. And you don't get paid to do it either. Oh, okay. Um, so, it's it's my gift to the nation. Right. <laughs> sounds That sounds a bit grandiose. A lot of this developed over time. And I'm not going to blame someone in the first. Uh, flush of things for thinking things because we all did we just yeah. didn't have access to contrary information that's right um, but as the contrary information came along people who were in position to make decisions and they knew these were life and death decisions and they were decisions that went against previous policy and they were de uh, decisions which were ethically fraught uh, in terms of things like the Nuremberg Protocols which every doctor should know, you know, I went to graduation of my daughter end of last year. Uh, she graduated in the medical faculty uh, with a PhD in biological science. Mm -hmm. um, she's now starting to be a doctor, but there were a whole lot of um, people there who were just graduating as doctors. And they had to say, after the, um, the dean of the faculty, I think, um, some version of the, the Nuremberg Code. So right. it's not as though it wouldn't have been well, you know, well known amongst the medical community. This is really ethically 
difficult saying to people you must do there's no exceptions because it just goes against everything that doctors are told they must do ethically so no. in those situations it's really incumbent on them to be doing more research than something like me and presumably they've got the intellectual skills to do it more easily than me you know i had to learn a lot of stuff yeah um whereas you know i had to learn to ride the bike whereas they were sort of trick cyclists they could do it on one wheel okay well i've got to go eat i'm hungry so um okay all right it's good to meet you thanks again i really appreciate it take care bye see you